Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top, the body positive, sex positive show with your host Jenny Lynn and Auntie Vice. This show contains explicit language, not suitable for most minors or easily offended majors. It contains opinionated discussion about politics, race, sex, fat folks, gender, which may not be suitable for conservatives. Additionally, some shows may contain references to science, statistics, history, research, mathematics, and reality, which may not be suitable for American evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. I'm your host, Auntie Vice. Here today with a guest host, our lovely sound man, Sharon Smith. Hello. Welcome to the show. Yeah, are doing? Jenny's out sick, so you've kindly offered to step in and do a little guest intro today. Did I? <laughs> Persuaded. <laughs> there may have been some exchange of favors. Some of it. <laughs> For those of you who are have not been listening or paying attention, Sharon is our sound man. He is the reason we have audio production. He is our editor. He helps produce the show. And- uh-huh. <laughs> no, I say uh-huh. Okay. I do all that. You, you do do all that. I do do all that. It's really, really good, too. And really, really good. <laughs> and then some. But well, what's our topic for today? So we have some lovely guests today. We have the two producers of The Body Politic, which Ooh. is a burlesque show that focuses on political statements through burlesque, Okay, which is very cool. Okay. And we have the Princess Kali, oh, okay. who is the founder and uh, CEO of Kink Academy. Okay. She wrote the book, Enough to Make You Blush. Ooh. She was a pro-dom. She's in retirement now and does coaching. And specializes in humiliation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> life's, so it's a good show to have you on. <laughs> life's good, yeah. Seriously. <laughs> so, for our guests uh, who listened to the, the pilot, Jenny and I both got to introduce ourselves a little bit. Okay. So, Sharon, introduce yourself. Hello, everybody. My name is Sharon Smith. I am an audio I am the business and DJ owner of a business called A Series Productions. I do audio productions, as you can see, for podcasts and music. I've been doing that thing for 20 years now. And I also DJ on the side here in the lovely city of Sacramento, downtown area. And I'm also, if you have, if you have seen some of my craziness, I also am a slam poet in the Sacramento area. And I am. With the lovely Auntie Vice all the time, her sidekick sometimes, weird, weird sidekick, but yeah. Yes. Like Ebony and Ivory, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he won my heart at an erotic poetry reading. Scary thoughts. Yes, we, we're, we're much alike. So, since I have a chance to talk to you on the show, and we haven't had a male guest host, we've had male, male guests. Yes, you have had male guests. We have not had a male guest host. Oh, damn. Uh, Let's let's talk a little bit about your body and your relationship to your body. My body relationship. Yeah. Uh, my body's um when I was a kid, my body's always been a temple. But I've kind of let that temple slide a little bit. I've always set myself as trying to be strong. So that's always been my biggest thing since I was a kid. And sexually, I have a few things I wish I could change in my body, but not too much. I mean, I always felt that you're given a body you deserve. I mean, you can rephrase it. You can do some things to it. You can modify a few things, but you gotta love. You gotta love what you got. Do you love what you got? Most of the time, yeah. Most, Most of the time, yeah. So before you got 
into the show and and you know you and I started chatting was the body positive movement and the sex positive movement a big thing in your life were you aware of it or is this new to you no body positive movement and sex positive movement has always been big in my life I mean I know a lot of people even when I was a kid and stuff that always had little they've always had little problems while looking at Cosmo um, even as a guy looking at bodybuilding magazines. I've also been called out being called gay for looking at those bodybuilding magazines. I didn't know why, but yeah, whatever. Um, and also had just wanted to be strong. Every male, every male has always wanted to be the big strong guy in the, in the group. Cause this, that masculinity would, um, excel past just past just being looked at as a, you know, an attractive fellow, but also be for women's attentions to build attention. So. so you've you've worked out, you've worked on it. Yeah, but you know, you get older, you're gonna lose some of it. So, so what have you discovered as you've gotten older? What is what has changed in your relationship with your body as you've gotten older? Well, one thing that's been changed in my relationship with my body is this, your hormone switches. I've been more surprised of what the body turns on and what body turns off. I now have more hair on my nose than I have more hair on my head, which always messed me up a little bit. You have more aches and pains you, you were more surprised about that never used to bother you as a kid. Now bother you more. But more yoga is useful. All, all my people out there, all my people in their 30s, yoga, love it. Learn how to stretch as much as possible. Please, if you have to get off the couch just to lay on the floor, stretch because you're going to need it really you're going to need it for the rest of your life just just do yoga don't have to do anything else just yoga yoga and stretching that's it learn to touch your toes learn to touch your toes this from the only man i know who actually looks panicked when we do yoga panic as ever <laughs> yes we we will do couples yoga on occasion mm-hmm. or as i call it Sharon's reintroduction to his toes for the week they they are they have been we have been pen pals for a while. It, it, it's not a long distance relationship. It's the notebook. <laughs> oh, the notebook. <laughs> it's going across time and space to find those things some days. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And and you do get into a few positions where you honestly look like you're panicked. You have to look panicked. <laughs> Your body never saw that position before and is wondering, why are you doing this to me? Do you want to tell them about the first time we did yoga together? <laughs> the first time was uh was scary i ain't gonna lie to you it was scary because i mean i'm used to i'm used to you know you do a few calisthenics jumping jacks um you do some some push-ups get yourself get your you know maybe a little run get your mind right you know just just to say okay my body is ready is warmed up and ready to do this you wanted to say well, we don't do that we're just gonna start doing yoga i'm like but that's, but no, wait a minute. Let me start doing yoga. I ain't going to lie to you. I was flushed. <laughs> I was sweating. And she said that was just the warm up. I'm like, what? That can't be the warm up. I've already done several moves enough. My body is now telling me, I think we're done. No, we're not. No, that's the warm up. No. It's just the first few sun salutations. <laughs> And I've done sun salutations. I didn't know they were like that. Like, I am not doing them right. <laughs> so I also know the other thing that surprised you is 
um, when we got together, I was not the typical girl you date. Okay. And as you've referred to yourself as the Black Alice, and I'm your Cheshire Cat. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about sex and sex positivity on your show. Um, what is the biggest surprise that you've come across in the last three years since we've known each other? There's a different world out there that people either play ignorant about or people are using religion about to avoid it. I mean, yeah, we there's people that call people freaks. But after a while, you start looking around going, these are these are this is everyday Joe people. These are people that go to work nine to five, have regular jobs. Some of you meet some even in politics and stuff. And they like they got their sex their sex appetite is beyond anybody else I know. And you gotta you gotta take that in considerably. No one's the same. Don't believe don't believe all the things you see in you know in Christianity and all that stuff, or or even the fact of any religious preference of any sort. We put a lot of restrictions on, on a lot of stuff, and some people have to go in hiding just to do what they want, and and that's a different world that I've learned. That's out there, and I'm glad it's there. I mean, I wish it can be out more in the open, but people wouldn't feel more scared of it. But I get it. You have to still protect yourself. I mean, that's that's with any, that's with any, that's LGBT, that's kink, that's um, that's anybody. Heck, some people just who just do a little role play or handcuffing and stuff. They they yeah. And does it mean I'm more of a freak? No. It just means <laughs> I know that they're out there. And even if I, they have to call me vanilla, which I, I really think that's the worst thing to call a person that's not into that. Vanilla. I mean, come on. How plain can you be on vanilla? Vanilla's quite tasty. And uh, now there's a, there's a shortage of it. It's also one of the most expensive flavors out there now. You know why they made it that way? Why? Because they were trying to make sure that <laughs> it, it rules. It's like LaCroix. <laughs> not a LaCroix fan not a LaCroix fan you had your first one recently Ooh, wow shout outs to my boy but god dog that's that's just watered down it's not even it's like it's like you sprinkled on a little bit of whatever you had and then you just put a lot of salsa water on top of it nothing there nothing there <laughs> I don't know how they do and I and problem was I actually went to the store and saw a guy getting three packs of that. That's to get the flavor you get in one can of anything else. <laughs> <laughs> but how many of those you have to drink to have a good time? Good grief. Uh, so one of the things we haven't talked to too many people about, we did talk to about with um Heather Heather Beth Woodford, who was yes. on episode five, yes, is parenting. Is. And you are a parent. I am a parent. Tell us about your kids. Oh, my I have a son that's two, gonna be three in October, and I got a daughter that's twelve. Right now she's having fun in, in Hawaii. And they're both very different. I I'm very happy they're both alive alive and well here in the world with all this craziness. But 
it also it's also a thing where even as a father you you have to learn that life is life is different as a father than it is as for mothers i mean i understand mothers um get a lot of um emotional stress with it because well one i do not my children do not live with me and i do not live with my children but i do keep in contact with them a lot and i do help support them but it does i ain't gonna lie to you it, it's it's really hard as a as two separate adults trying to take care of a child than it is when two when two adults are living together i i i to all those guys out there thinking about leaving your wives or whatever the heck don't do it just just try to figure out how to maintain i mean unless you're unless you're doing some heinous stuff to them try to figure out how to maintain i mean come on you got to find somewhere of it's better being together than it is being apart but anyway my children are very my children are very they're just like me in some ways my my son he's he's very adventurous he wants to do a lot my daughter she she's very intellectual on her thoughts i think she's gonna be that new leader when she gets older so yeah so your daughter's 12 yes and she's at the age where you lots of people really start thinking about their kids growing up your kids start dating they just start oh gosh discovering all of that and we've talked a little bit about it um on here but as you've thought about you know raising your kids in the world today what type of stuff as a dad do you think about how you want to teach them about their bodies their their image how they relate to the world and then how they relate to other people especially somebody that they may eventually date well you have to base you have to take a lot of putting a lot of positive work into their minds because there's always going to be a lot of people going to break it down to them they're going to try to tear them down so you have to keep their you have to bring up a lot of positivity. Um, I do. I do try to tell parents to. You need to talk to them about the birds and the bees before someone else does, and that somebody else may not be someone that you care for, like um, like a boyfriend or some friend that, or one of their friends that tell them the wrong information, or even the internet. You have to be the one to get in there and talk to them because if you don't. You don't know what's going to come out of it, and it may not be something you're that's going to help you that you're going to enjoy hearing. So have you started talking to your daughter about it? I have I have started talking to her about it, but her mom's kind of trying to tell me to be very gentle, light on the information. Okay, fine. I, I mean, I haven't gone into any anything extreme yet, but she has asked about the birds. She has asked about some um, babies and stuff. She knows where they come from and everything, but you know, she sees herself grow. I mean, I heck, I gotta see her grow. It's a little hard to see a little girl become almost a woman. So becoming a young woman. And both your kids are mixed race. Yes. Um they're half black and then their moms half are half black, half white, and half Mexican. Both of them actually. Well, quarter white, quarter Mexican. Quarter white. Otherwise quarter you Mexican. get one and a half kids each. Yeah. They're all they're all yeah, yeah. Half, <laughs> half it's white, math. It's half hard. black. Quarter, quarter white, quarter Mexican. Yeah, they 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 do both look. Like, you can tell they they both look like my kids. Like, oh, they're my kids. Do you talk to them about how they're going to interact with the world? What it means to be a mixed race kid? Do you talk to them about race? Well, my son doesn't understand it yet, so he's just he's just going along with what he thinks. Just going along with the world as the way he thinks it is. Just 
just he's joyous. three. Yeah. yeah. Or almost three. Uh, my my daughter, I think, is more. She's trying to find her, trying to find the way in herself, than what her personal views on the world than she does on what the world's about. I mean, yes, you know, her mom, her mom and I will bring up personal. Um, we will bring up political issues about Trump and some other things, but she she does see the bad side of. You know, some of the ghetto areas, the kids, and y'all see some of the sides she lives on and stuff. So, she thinks she lives in the rural. She's, she lives in the rural lifestyle. So, to her, this is how this is how the people in the farms and everything live. So, but yeah. Do you worry about how they're going to be treated by the world? Oh, absolutely. What are your big fears? Well, for my daughter, I fear not only. Um, racial tension but i also feel concerned of her being a woman i mean the we still haven't gotten to the point of actually addressing the issue of of rape of of um the men men's um um ways of thinking of what women should be like and subdued or um, abuse and we also we also have this sexual provocative thought process of what women should be like and and they should be subservient and i and all that is just ridiculous that's that shouldn't that shouldn't be a thing but unfortunately that's one thing she, she has to face and i got to be around just to see that and do you talk to her about that stuff yet or not yes yet? yeah i do talk to her a little bit about it but to her right now, it's not in her. It's not in her. It's not in her frame frame of reference. Yeah, she's just she's more concerned with school and let's get through this. <laughs> and it's how yeah, junior high is horrible. Nobody ever has a fantasy about going back to junior high. But here's the funny part: she has a she has powerful women in her life. I mean, she has her aunt's a businesswoman, so she owns her own business. Uh, her mom, her mom works in the schools. Her her grandmother. Both her grandmothers work in high high positions in jobs. I mean, they actually take care of the family more than, than, than the dads. Kind of kind of messed me up a little bit. So she she sees everything in a woman's point of view. She sees high professional women, so that's what she wants to be. And is that encouraging to you? It's encouraging to me. It's encouraging to me to know that she can. She has that in her life. Then has the other thing where everybody rejects women, brings them down. So, you know, we, we talk on the show kind of about where things are at and where people want to see them go, right. whatever field they're in, whatever they're passionate about. As a dad looking for your kids where you'd want to see things in 10, 15 years down the road, what are some of your hopes for where we could progress to? What would you like to see change to make it better for your kids? One thing I'd like to see change what my kids is we need to re we need to rethink the education system because a lot of the stuff that they're teaching isn't being taught. So now it comes to the point where parents have to get off their duffs and teach their children because a lot of them don't, they put too much information and credit for the, the education system, the institution to take care of it, which is the education system can only do so much. You gotta basically get in there and also be involved in your kids. I'm not telling you to be a hover parent, because that doesn't help you either. 
But I'm all, what I'm saying is you have to get involved with what they learn and what they should learn. I mean, be involved and see what they get in their books. Be in, take, them, take them to projects, you know, make their own little projects. Of, do their, um, take them, you, you're the ones that can take them to um, resources in different places where they can get information and stuff or museums. You, you don't have to rely on the school all the time to do it. But I understand parents say, well, I'm, I'm the only one out here. There's mm-hmm. no one else helping me. But you got to figure out a way to do it mm-hmm. because you're the one that's going to be their reliability on information. They, they can only do so much. And you sometimes, in the way some things are, parents resist a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. They put a lot of restrictions on, no, you're not going to be able to find that. You put so much restriction on it, then why they can't find it? Explain it to them. You shouldn't learn this because of this. Right. And, okay, and, and for parents and for other parents, I, I suggest you try to find places where there's a little bit more of a multi-race or some sort. Don't get too comfortable being around your kids, being around the same race of people. Because after a while, people put a lot of fear in just having, we have to be close to our own. Not all the time, because they have to deal, they're going to have to deal with the other races. Mm-hmm. In time, so they might as well get a kind of a. They see you with them, then they'll be fine. You won't you won't feel mad when they bring home a, a black kid or a white kid or a Asian kid, some sort. And when it, and when it, when it shouldn't bother you, but they all want friends. I mean, it's in the in the part in the play playground. Everyone loves playing tag, mm-hmm. so why don't we just enjoy that instead of saying, "Well, no, you don't want to mess with that." There, that's the point. Mm-hmm. So we're going to move on to our next segment in just a minute with the Princess Kali. Uh-oh. We had a great conversation with her. But before we go, where can people find you? Are you pref- oh, my goodness. You're really going to do this? Uh, I'm going to have you plug oh your own stuff over on the goodness. show. Well, if you want to find me, folks, I will give you my. You can find me on on Instagram under a serious productions altogether, a serious productions. You can find me on Facebook, uh, Sharon E Smith, C H A two R's O N. And you can find me on my, on webs, my webpage right now. Uh, my poetry webpage is re, um, That is R E S wonderland.com. My serious production website is going to be out soon. So, Keep your eye on it'll and, it'll be out by the time the show airs. So give me a full <laughs> plug. Actually, this will be out before this will be out before you, and it'll be under seriousproductions.com. Excellent. And every third, what is it? Every third Sunday every, at Momos in Sacramento. Every third Sunday, he is on the ones and twos doing DJing. Before we have we've had two guests on the show, Ungayo Bilam and. Uh-huh. Wendy Lewis That's and right. they co-host Dabalicious Comedy. Yes, so you can go see some of our favorite fat chicks, including some of the other comics, um, like Diana Hong, who's been there, and I forget who else we've aired already. But um, yeah, check out Dabalicious. At uh, actually, that's incorrect. Is absolutely or da- absolutely absolutely comedy. This is why we edit and I can cut. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for staying with us. Stay through the next segment, and we'll be back with the Princess Holly. All right, peace. 
Welcome back to Fat Chicks on Top. Thanks for staying with us. We're here today with the Princess Kali. She is a kink educator. She's the founder of the Kink Academy, and she is a fully retired pro-dom who has specialized in humiliation. She has a book out, Enough to Make You Blush, which is fantastic, and is an amazing kink educator. I've taken a number of her classes. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's just kind of dive right in. Your specialty is humiliation, which is something most of us spend our lives trying to avoid. (laughs) It's true. Yes, this is a very different context than than in the outer world. Right. right. So for for listeners who may not be as familiar with with it, and I will full disclosure, I love humiliation play from both sides. I've been a switch on it for a long time. But for people, but, but for people who may not be as familiar with this type of play, is it just hurling insults at your partner in bed? Definitely not. I think, in fact, that's probably one of the most common misconceptions, even from other kinky people, even even folks who enjoy lots of other kinky adventures don't necessarily they think that um, humiliation is just all about being mean. Mm-hmm. But in actuality, erotic humiliation is about taking the larger context of what these experiences might be in the broader world, and then recontextualizing them to make them not only consensual, but arousing. Do erotic humiliation well. Both partners have to be fairly aware of things like what are cultural taboos and what they're ashamed about, correct? Yes. Erotic humiliation is entirely rooted in personal taboo and the intersection of cultural context. And so one of the things that I talk a lot about in my book and in my classes is about how With kink in general, I think, but most especially with any sort of psychological torment, you really can't escape the cultural context of sexism, racism, classism, Mm -hmm. body image expectations, sexual behavior expectations, that these taboos and these cultural contexts are exactly the kind of clay that we're playing with when it comes to erotic humiliation. So you you talk about cultural context and you've been involved in an extended Twitter exchange in the last week or so about the fact that people who submit to female dominatrixes and female doms in their their own life do so because they don't. There's a there's a question of whether or not this is playing into misogyny or playing against the whole taboo of misogyny. Do you want to talk a little bit about how it straddles both worlds? I mean, it's it's a fairly complex conversation to delve into. Oh, absolutely. And I think the the biggest lesson about this sort of thing is that it is so super personal that for some folks, it's going to be too much of an experience of like, oh, I'm searching for the word of like of perpetuating it these sorts of things like misogyny and sexism and class and those kinds of things that if it feels too much like it's perpetuating, then you're not going to have the same sort of, you know, ultimately pleasurable experiences. But I think that there are a lot of us who also prefer to use it and turn it on its head and see it as kind of using it as a tool and that when it becomes a tool, you can use it in any varieties of ways. But it requires to have actually a pretty decent knowledge of women's roles in history and what it means to assume these different positions, right? Oh, absolutely. I think particularly when it comes to femdom, there there are a lot of cisgendered male submissives mm-hmm. who 
think of themselves as being 100% respectful of women, that that's why they want to be submissive. And, um, you know, that I mean, I've had submissives that identify themselves as female supremacists. They really believe that women are, you know, the supreme creatures. And yet those same folks can often find themselves aroused by the taboo of submitting to women and not necessarily understand that the reason that that taboo often exists is based in patriarchal expectations of how women behave and how men behave. And that for, for someone to submit to, to a woman who is still fairly frequently socially considered to be second class citizens, Mm -hmm. that that's where a lot of the the power and the arousal can come from. Now, not for everyone, but I think that it can be a really interesting sort of meta kink experience to take a look at how that might be impacting your play if you are involved in a fairly hetero normative femdom male submissive dynamic. So how would you go about either in you know your own relations with other submissives or if you were coaching somebody how do you go about understanding the context that you're playing in is that reading is are there resources like how do you explore that yeah well you know i i do highly recommend my book mostly because um not only is it a book that i'm proud of but there really mm-hmm. has not been a lot of information out in the world about erotic humiliation. And so oftentimes it can feel really frustrating to try to figure this stuff out because there's Mm -hmm. just not necessarily as many resources as if you're into bondage. And so my book goes into very deeply into kind of what are the cultural contexts? How can you figure out your own personal taboos? And then how do you safely explore them? But another way that that folks can kind of take into that um, and dive into their own interests is Mm -hmm. to really One, look at your own fantasies and start to look at them from a lens of trying to figure out what inspires them. Also, of course, looking at erotica and other types of porn to kind of see what turns you on and to just try to allow some mental room for thinking about why it might turn you on. Now, I like to encourage folks to not do this exercise from a place of judgment, right? Like it's not like, you know, oh, you know, if you're a man and you want to, and you're into domestic service and really you kind of dig deeper and you find out that maybe that has some classism or sexism Mm -hmm. roots, that's okay. Like you're not a bad person. You're not a bad kinkster. You just need to be aware that the world we live in impacts our sexual psychology. And I think a lot of people tend to think of it as divorce, like somehow sexuality is so innate, it's not influenced by everything else. But kink in general, and especially erotic humiliation, really does tap into, so what are you processing from the larger world? How are, how are you understanding it? There was an article in the Huffington Post oh, about a year ago now about black pro-dom, femdom in New York, who made her clients read Black liberation literature as part of being her client. Yes. 
is that like if if you find yourself being drawn to erotic humiliation in in any area, if it's around race, would you recommend reading around race? If it's around gender, like does that add to most people's experience of actually having the the educational background to understand it? Oh, I think that it it can give you a lot of fodder to work with. I I love that article. And when I was a dominatrix, I talked a lot about forced feminism. And so mm-hmm. obviously she's got the extra element of race play that she is helping to educate her clients on. And again, it's not, it's not about saying like, Oh, you're a bad person because you have this interest, but Mm -hmm. education can not only make you understand yourself in the world better, but it can actually make the experience a lot more richer Mm -hmm. because you have even more language and you have even more understanding of where these desires are rooted in. And so then that gives you a lot more, you know, just a, a lot more muck to muck around in, like sexy brain muck to muck around in. I, I would totally agree on that point. I, I like the, the sexy brain muck. It works for me. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it doesn't sound so sexy to some people, but to me, ooh, give me some brain muck to muck around in. And that is hella my style. <laughs> well, and I, I do appreciate kink in the fact that the intersection between people who are highly educated and who are kinksters is a pretty overlapping Venn diagram there. Oh, absolutely. I One of the most common descriptors I give to folks is that kinky individuals are often exceptionally creative and mm. they tend to be thinkers. And because we are not someone, like we tend not to be people who are just satisfied with what we're given in terms right. of sexual options, right? Like tits, ass, missionary position, bada bing, bada boom. Right. Kinky folks think and create much more complex scenarios. And of course, that's super fun and there's a lot to work with there, but it also can make things a little bit more complicated. And so that's why, you know, self-education can really only, I think, ever be a good thing. So I've been in one of your classes where you tell a story about a client who had approached you online, was trying to set something up, and his thing he wanted to be humiliated around was having a small penis. And when you teach it, oh, yes. <laughs> so when you teach it in the class, you talk about how, you know, he's got all this big buildup and then you meet one on one. And as soon as you start, he has this meltdown. And what that teaches you about shame. Do you mind sharing a little bit of that with with our listeners? Oh, absolutely. It's one of my um, my favorite stories because it's so demonstrative of how we the things that we are aroused by and the things that we fantasize about in our minds aren't always as exciting, titillating or positive when we experience them in real life. And I think Mm -hmm. that it's important for us to make room in our sexual adventure for things to go awry. And so when a client, this client had emailed me and said, you know, um, small penis humiliation is a really frequent request, particularly in the pro scene. I think Mm -hmm. it's a really great example of how men recontextualize the shame that the world tells them they're supposed to feel about having a small penis, which is shame that is rooted in patriarchy also, and actually recontextualizes it to be arousing. So that in and of itself, I think, is a great example of humiliation. But after emailing me and being sharing the enthusiasm for the session when he came in and I started laying into him the way that we had negotiated right. verbally speaking, he was for the first time ever confronted with a real live woman looking at him disparaging his manhood. Mm-hmm. And up until that point, it really had only been a fantasy. He had not ever had it, 
had it experienced in real life. And so once we figured out that really the the session had gone to a negative place, we sat down, we talked about how sometimes fantasies are way sexier in our heads and that it's a perfectly acceptable thing to leave those fantasies right where they belong. Yeah. So if you have a partner there, you know, you, this brings up the, the issue of, you know, things going awry and the best laid intentions don't always pan out. If you were working with a partner and a lot of our listeners have a fair amount of body shame, right? When you're a bigger person, especially if you're queer or a person of color, you're told your body is invalid. Your body's wrong. These are you know common messages. If you have somebody who's been playing with this as a fantasy and you finally decide to try it with a partner, what would be the caveats you would give our listeners? The, one of the biggest things that I recommend is what I call the ramp up, don't dive in principle. And so it can be easy to want to just launch into what you think will be humiliating. Mm-hmm. And that often can be some really intense stuff, right? Like you just kind of let your words loose. And sometimes things can be said that you don't, that that not everybody was expecting. And so the way to build successful psychological based scenes is to start small and to create powerfully successful scenes that you can build on. So ramp up, don't dive in. And the other most important principle in a short period of time yeah. that I could share would be the recommendation that, that it, as in all kink play, but most especially this kind of inner psychological tormenting sort of sort of play communication is absolutely critical Mm -hmm. one of the questions i get really often is is it less humiliating if you ask for it or the fear that if you're on the submissive side that if you tell your partner what you want that somehow that's going to ruin it and i just want to squash that myth entirely because humiliation is definitely one of those things that the process of confessing your filthy mm-hmm. fantasies is actual foreplay. Like it's, it, it can in fact be a scene in and of itself. And mm-hmm. so the act of asking for something humiliating is, is only more erotic rather than necessarily, you know, supposedly ruining it. And the same thing about kind of talking about what the experiences are. Think of it as the more information that the dominant or top has the more that they have to work with um, in terms of knowing what buttons to push and what buttons to concretely stay away from. So start small, ramp up, don't dive in, and communicate, communicate, communicate. I would totally agree as somebody who's done it from from both ends that both, those are, are key. You give me a nice transition into the other big Twitter conversation I've seen you in the uh, recently, which is aftercare for the top or the dominant? Yes, I am. I am a major. This is a major soapbox for me. (laughs) Yes. Well, and I think even in the kink scene, even if you've been in it for a long time, the focus is always on the submissives aftercare. And, you know, as somebody who's done a lot of impact play, that's pretty easy to figure out. But for a top in a humiliation scene, what type of I mean, you've just laid into your partner and called them names and stuff. Why would they need aftercare and how do you go about figuring out what aftercare you would need? Absolutely. We as a kink community have really focused a lot on the intensity of the experience from the submissive or bottom side. And Mm -hmm. while obviously that is very, very true, 
I think that for many years, we there was a, a missing conversation about not only the amount of physical effort that a lot of dominance and tops put in, especially when it comes to an impact play, but the sort of psychological and creative effort that uh, a lot of tops and dominance have to confront and really come up against, particularly when it comes to erotic humiliation or psychological torment, is that we as dominance are confronting a lot of our own taboos of what it means to be a good person, mm-hmm. of what it means to be loving in a relationship, of what sort of behaviors are acceptable. And whereas spanking and tying people up have become really, you know, I don't want to say like completely normalized per se, but they really have been mainstreamed in a way that like, you know, spitting on your partner and calling them, you know, filthy names Mm -hmm. has not quite reached the mainstream yet. And so, you know, giving dominance aftercare and making sure that you are both negotiating for what you need afterwards, whether that's you know, a conversation that lets everybody know that it, that it was all consensual and it was all desirable to, you know, snuggles and soft time together. Mm-hmm. But another thing that I want to just make sure to squeeze in there is that aftercare is we as a kink community, we've also focused very much on aftercare as kind of a catch all for anything right. that happens after a scene. And I think that it's time to break that into two things. So aftercare is for when things go right. Mm-hmm. And a trigger plan is for when things go wrong. And so these are two separate things that might require very separate needs for both people involved. And again, both the dominant and the submissive need to have a trigger plan because both dominants and submissives can be triggered when it comes to these kinds of sensitive activities. And of course, that's part of the appeal, but we have to be prepared for when things go awry. Exactly, exactly. As part of this, over on our patron account, when your interview goes up, I will have the first time I was asked to do race play from a partner. And my graduate work is in the political history of of America and race. So it was not. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Right. After teaching, you know, in university around this, all my research being done around this, this was not something I was comfortable with. At all. And so I'll have the story up about kind of how I got through because that was incredibly triggering to me because this is not something what he was asking me to do was not something I was going to be okay with at all. Sure. And so from the toss perspective, that'll be over there for for folks to go see. I want to squeeze in. There's so there's a lot of talk about me, too. There's been a number of cases that have come out where women have claimed they've been assaulted Uh, in New York. There's a. I believe it's an assemblyman being accused of non-consensually hitting and shaming a woman, and he's claiming it's kink. So what's this is my my big ballywick is what's the difference between consensual humiliation play and just being an ass? Sure. I actually I have five key differences that I talk about in my book, because um, because on the surface, a lot of what kink looks like, and especially something like humiliation looks like superficially can seem really abusive. And Mm -hmm. so the, for me, the five D key differences are true consent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whereas a lot of people talk about enthusiastic consent, that, that word can be a little complicated when it comes to (laughs) humiliation fetish. And so what I like to think of is instead is informed consent. Someone Mm -hmm. knows 
understands what's going to be happening. They understand kind of what the expectations are. So informed consent. Also context. Someone might give me consent to humiliate them within a home dungeon scenario, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that I have consent to humiliate them at their workplace or in front of their family. So context has a lot to do with it. Intention. Do I want the person to ultimately feel good about what has happened or am I using this to actually legitimately tear someone down and leave them there? And that is not something that we encourage. There is the process Mm -hmm. of the intention of bringing them through ultimately to a positive place. And then, of course, the trust and communication that's going to get you to those three previous points. So so, you know, for me, those are the five key elements that that create the line between an abusive, non-consensual, damaging, hurtful experience Mm -hmm. and a erotic but complex experience through tumultuous experiences such as humiliation. Thank you. And before, you know, we give the listeners every place to go find your books, to find you, real quick, you were in Kink Academy. The federal government has passed two laws recently, SESTA and FOSTA. How has that impacted your work? SESTA and FOSTA, at least currently, knock on wood, has not had a lot of impact. I created Kink Academy 11 years ago, and it's a it's an indie company created by kinksters for kinksters. And our our the entire focus is on education. It truly is on sharing information in a safe, healthy manner. And so while obviously the things that we're teaching people on Kink Academy are very sexy, the, the presentation and the focus is on education and information. And so we we stand by sex workers as a former sex worker myself and as a website that hosts many current and former sex workers as experts, you know, we believe that SESTA and FOSTA are bullshit and Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, as a society, you know, we need to see that sex workers are often the canary in the in the coal yard. But we've just actually started shooting new videos for the first time in a few years for Kink Academy. And so I'm really excited to be sharing some new content and some new experts on the site. I'm it's a great resource. I would strongly encourage people to check it out. And it's $20 a month, right, to subscribe? Yes, it's super. We have over 2,000 videos. There's over 140 experts. As I said, we're just going to start uploading some new bonus content in the next couple of months. And so, you know, it's a really ever-evolving website. It's basically the largest conference you can imagine right in your pocket to to be watched on your own schedule and you know, per your own needs. It's it's a pretty badass resource, I, I have it, to say. It, it is. I, I will plug it. It is worth your twenty dollars a month and, and definitely support the effort. So if and I'll put in a plug for your classes. When the I've taken your classes, they have been some of the most informative, well thought out and entertaining classes I've taken in all the kink community. Thank you. And I would encourage our listeners to to seek out the classes you do. I know you have a ton of stuff coming up. If people want to find you online or if they want to go out and take a class or buy a book or buy your new kink cards, where do they go? So you can find me at coachingbycali.com. That's where I make sure that I have all of my updated calendar and information on the one-on-one coaching that I offer to folks anywhere in the world through Skype. And then you can also find my first book, Enough to Make You Blush, on enoughtomakeyoublush.com, where it also has 
some really fun extra goodies. Like I have a couple of decks of cards, like the truth or dare, a humiliation truth or dare, and the sissy truth or dare, as well as a verbal humiliation deck and some other goodies. And then, of course, you can find me at kink.com, where you can watch me and many other educators and learn from my classes online. Thank you for so much for coming on, and I hope to run into you soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, and uh, best kink wishes to everybody. Welcome back to Fat Chicks on the Top. We're here this afternoon with Andy and Laika from The Body Political. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you guys on. I reached out to you. You've done the show here in the Bay Area near us, and it is a very different type of burlesque show that you, you have put together as producers. So let's just start with the basics. What is The Body Political? What's the purpose behind this specific burlesque show? Yeah, so The Body Political started as a burlesque show. We're actually now a 501c3 nonprofit. We started just doing a, you know, burlesque and variety show and decided that we really felt like we wanted to expand the mission, which at the core is to amplify untold stories about the body through personal stories of resistance and reclamation. So unlike a lot of typical, quote, burlesque shows, which are really about the fantasy um, and, and being drawn into a fantasy, the body political is about the reality of what we experience in our bodies. So it's about us connecting the audience and the other performers and, and just like building this community where we're sharing stories and we're understanding each other's experiences. You describe it on, on the site when you talk about it in other forums as a conversation. Right now, what are the conversations you're hoping to continue about the body? What are the, the key ones you're working on right now? That's a great question. So every show is different and it's we're really excited in that every time we get applications, we get you know the the range of stories and things about people's experiences in their bodies that they want to explore widens beyond you know obviously our experiences in our own bodies. So that's included everything from gender, sexuality, race, ability, and and disability, mental health, reproduction, reproductive health, all kinds of things. So it's it's a pretty wide range. And a lot of it, you know, does come out of obviously a response to not only people's day to day experiences, but also political moments. So in the last couple of shows, we've like held more space for conversations around race and the way the bodies are controlled and limited and people's experiences, you know, particularly people of color, because like race is obviously such a big issue in this country becoming more tenuous with every tweet. Did the political change in the U.S. change what was coming into your show from the performer side? Yeah, absolutely. Our first show that we did after the election and really consistently since then, to us, it's very clear that there's a lot of pain. We used to get a lot more acts that were lighthearted. And we used to get a lot more comedy acts. And I think people are submitting acts that are a lot darker, a lot rawer, a lot more vulnerable. Like in, in some ways, it's it's wonderful because we're really starting to like those those real deep stories are coming out. But a lot of them are wrapped in pain. And I, I would say we've definitely noticed a shift in the type of applications that we receive since the elections. One of the things I've noticed from going to burlesque shows and being in them and talking to people who've been in the audiences, they often will say, you know, when I see a woman up on stage 
and she does this great act and really owns the stage. It's very freeing for the person in the audience. And like you said, a lot of the burlesque is around you know, the flirtation and the fantasy. What's the feedback you get from audience members who see your show, which is so much not about the fantasy of the body? Yeah, that's a great question. We actually get a lot of really great feedback. We actually send out a survey after our shows to our audiences um, to kind of get testimonials. And so we know how the shows are landing. And I mean, I think we definitely have a lot of we have had a lot of pieces over the years that are about body positivity and people owning their sexuality. I mean, that is the baseline of a number of styles of burlesque. And that's something that we embrace. But I think one of the quotes that we use a lot is people have described our show as a roller coaster of emotion, (laughs) (laughs) which we love, (laughs) which like is great to us. You know, like Andy was saying recently, we have that the show has developed more of a serious tone. But when we're casting the show, you know, we we invite people to bring us all different kinds of things about their journeys with their bodies. Right. We do want to mix. We don't want it to just all be heavy. We do really want to take people on a journey mm-hmm. and like allow the audience to access different emotions by way of, you know, the the performances that we have in the show, because that to me is like what real liberation feels like. Right. Both for the performers and for the audience is to be real with all of it, right? So like with the parts of your body or your experiences in your body that are freeing and liberating and that you love and the parts of your body that you're struggling with or the ways your body's perceived that you want to reject. We really try to have a good mix of all those things because I think that that's all just a real, that's just the reality of life. So uh, with your new nonprofit status, are you in the community doing things outside of the shows on any self-care levels, community education work, really just beyond the release of the performers, you know, getting out their experiences and sharing and educating through the burlesque? Are there other things you're doing in the community? Yeah. So we've developed a curriculum that is focused on how burlesque performers, but really all performers can create a piece about their body. So we have taught this curriculum in Texas. We've taught it at BurleyCon. We're returning to BurleyCon this year to teach this curriculum. So that's when we were expanding outside of the show and, you know, really saying to the community, hey, if you want to create this art, I mean, we get that it's it's hard to create this type of burlesque when you've been doing another style of burlesque for so long. And that's actually how and why we started the show is because Laika and I were really creating subversive burlesque acts and we really bonded over that. So we understand that it's challenging. So we've created a curriculum and really a framework around it to help guide performers into like, here are some ways that you can approach something that can feel very, very intimidating. Right. So we had the educational aspect and we're really looking in, you know, especially in 2019 to level up the ways in which we are, are talking about the bodies in the communities and having more educational material that is more ongoing instead of just like one off workshop. When audience members leave body politic, uh, do they leave with any information or community resources by chance? Yeah, definitely. So that's another piece that we that is an intention of the show is to not only like raise these issues and help the audience feel present 
with like other people's experiences, but then also what is that motivating you to like act on once you leave. So we've been referring to that sort of as our community partnership, which depending on the show that we're at, you know, when we were in a bigger venue, we in, we reached out and found a bunch of community partners that were working on issues that were related to acts that were in that particular show. So right. we had um, one group called the Whole Human Project that does a year long um, sex ed slash like emotional development program for high schoolers. And it's like very like queer and trans inclusive and like, yeah, they're amazing. And so we had them tabling at the event. And so that was a way that we're trying to connect, you know, what we, what do we say? Connecting art to action. Right. And um, how many, how many cities yeah. has Bali body politic been in? Uh, so the body political has been in San Francisco, Oakland and Denver, and we will likely be in a new city in 2019. We're still deciding. We've been so fortunate to be invited to many cities. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So we now have to decide logistically what's going to be the, you know, what's going to work for us and, and where geographically it makes sense so that more people can have access to the show because we're on the West Coast. There's a certain area in which performers can travel. But one of the reasons we want to travel with the show and have it in different cities is that then we're on the East Coast at one point. So there are right. performers there that don't have to travel as far or in the Midwest, right? So it's creating that those access points for people. You guys have been working together as a team for quite some time. The, what is the favorite act that you two do together? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. We actually, we only have two duets, right? Yes. Yeah. Which is kind of surprising. Yeah. We have, have more. But um, can I tell them about Yeah, yeah, go definitely tell our, them. Uh, I know what you're going to say. Our <laughs> featured act. Our, uh, or what's that, what's that word people use? Signature act. Signature, our signature act. Okay, so Andy and I have a piece called Rainbow Fisting Magic. <laughs> <laughs> and it is an act about queer sex in the style of synchronized swimming. So that's amazing. The act like follows and it's like to fill up glass and it's all very like serious, like kind of classical music. And it's an act about the the entire courtship ritual from gazing at each other lustfully across a room all the way through to explosion explosive orgasms of rainbows <laughs> pulled out of each other's crotches and ending in a giant naked exhausted heap um, <laughs> all in the style of synchronized swimming with the whole little merman flower caps and the whole nine that's amazing Beautiful. <laughs> we can send you a video if you want please <laughs> i i've seen pictures of the the swimming outfits together and you guys make such a cute couple on stage like you work well together. I can totally see how that would evolve. So as we've come into this new political time in the U.S., where do you see your own, each for each of you, your own acts evolving? What, what's the next area you're looking to develop? Uh, so personally for me, I've become really interested in the integration of performance art and spoken word and burlesque. I uh, you know, I I have a my I started as just a burlesque performer, straight up. You know, the strip and all that. And my acts have always been very confrontational and subversive. But I really, especially being inspired by our own show and seeing these 
performers take these different art mediums and like weave them together. I am very inspired by that. So I see myself moving into like a more interdisciplinary direction. And and I think that because one thing that our show really focuses on is the complexity of identities. And so to me, it makes sense then that our art is becoming more and more complex, right? As we like explore the complexity of identities. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I've been, I think because we've been like in such a generative space with this project, I feel like I've been kind of shifting into more of a like, you know, how do we grow this organization? How do we support other performers? And what one of the things we didn't mention earlier in terms of where we want to go with the project is um, we want to eventually do more work around like mentoring other um, performers that want to get into producing, particularly like shows like either producers who to identify as members of marginalized communities within the blessed world or just like shows with themes around, you know, centering, centering marginalized communities. And so I've been kind of shifting into more of that space and not performing as much, um, which is hard because like I, I love performing, but uh-huh. I've right. just been in a different headspace. So I haven't really the for, for the first time in like eight years, my brain is not constantly like I could do an act about that. I could do an act about that, you know, <laughs> which I'm actually OK with because I just I'm really enjoying like sitting back and like hearing other people and supporting other people. So if our audience wants to find either of you, find the show, if they want to participate, how do they go about doing that? There's a few things. So our website is thebodypolitical.com. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thebodypolitical, Instagram, also at thebodypolitical. Our Our next show is going to be next summer in the Bay Area. And we do an open application process with the first few weeks of that application process being a priority application period. We were inspired by our friend Taz Al Ghul in LA who does when she produces shows, she does like a specific priority application period that is explicitly kind of reaching out to marginalized folks, center them in our casting process. If people want to um, perform in the show, get on our email list. It's on our website and um, we will email you when applications are open We'll also post it all over Facebook and Instagram. So you can also get on our email list and specify that you're just interested in following the project or attending a future show, email you about all the things. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on the show and good luck with the, the continued work. I, you know, I've been to the show. I've had several friends in the show and would encourage anybody out there, any of our listeners to definitely go check this out. It's a different type of burlesque show. It's, incredibly powerful and very liberating i found when i went to see it thank you yeah yeah so thank you so much thank you for producing the show and to all of our listeners go follow them go check out these these wonderful ladies and all their great work thank you so much and if i can just make a tiny little plug um and that yeah as you can tell loyal listeners (laughs) we're very ambitious with this project and what we would really love is uh, financial support. We so, are all for yeah. Yes. If you can support these, <laughs> these women. And do they do that through thebodypolitical.com or are there other ways to get you money? Yeah. So you can go to thebodypolitical.com slash donate. You can donate there. 
You can also, um, we just signed up, Andy just signed us up for Amazon Smile. You sign up, we'll send out instructions, I think, on that shortly. But if you sign up and like register us as your Amazon Smile beneficiary, Mm -hmm. then what is it? A certain percentage of your... Yeah, 0.5% of your purchase goes to the body political and it doesn't affect your purchase at all. So you just, Amazon just gives us money for doing good work and you just go on your merry way we're not endorsing amazon (laughs) try not to use them because they're evil but we all know especially as performers prime is Hmm. key at some certain points in (laughs) your (laughs) costume production cycle so if you're going to use amazon you can support us yeah and take a tiny bit of money out of their pocket and into supporting radical art excellent Excellent. and we'll make sure we have all those links up on our site for our listeners to go and support you and sign up and follow you and do all the wonderful things. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank Thank you so much for having us. We love your podcast. And we love you you guys. This has been a Fat Chicks on Top production with your hosts, Auntie Vice and Jenilyn. Thank you to our sound engineer, Sharon Smith, and David Manga for our awesome music. For all things Fat Chicks, we're on every social media platform. For full interviews and explicit content, please subscribe to our Patreon.